welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Welcome to Plenary Session Re-Up Edition. In this bonus episode, I'm gonna take a little bit of audio you might have missed and bring it to your attention. This is a discussion Dr. Adam Obley and I had on cancer screening, and I need a link so I can send people so that they can come to a simple discussion where we teach basic principles of cancer screening. Now, in the course of this audio tape, I made one misspeak about NLST. I said that trial did not capture the full diagnostic cascade or odyssey, and that remains correct. Although in some instances, I was incorrect to say they captured just the first diagnostic test, it might have been the first couple. But either way, the critical point is, was the entire odyssey captured? And the answer was, it often wasn't. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast, and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Adam Obley. Dr. Obley should need no introduction. He is now Associate Professor of Medicine. Congratulations, I saw you just got promoted, Adam. Thank you very much, I appreciate it's it. much overdue, should have done it years ago. He is also a frequent guest of this podcast. He appeared on episode one, which is an episode I tell listeners not to listen to because we're still practicing. He's also a guest on other episodes where he did a marvelous job talking about, I think, many different topics over, over the course of the last year. I think you've been on, this is your fourth time on the podcast. That's right. That right. I'm still waiting on my four-timers jacket. The four-timers jacket. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a green uh, a blazer that we, that we anoint all the winners, just like the master's jacket. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here. So you're here to talk about cancer screening, and in part because, boy, you know, there's no place worse to talk about cancer screening than with a bunch of physicians on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst place to talk about it. It's the worst place to talk about pretty much anything. It's the worst place to talk about, yes, pretty much anything. But especially cancer screening. I think it's particularly frustrating because there are just some very simple basics, fundamentals that I don't think people get. Or, and, and it shocks me that they've gotten very far without getting the simple thing. I'll just give you one example. Somebody said in this argument about lung cancer screening I was having that the five-year survival before screening was actually quite poor. And the five-year survival among people who are screened is much better. It's at least fourfold higher. Ergo, screening saves lives. You're nodding. Yes, so you, that embraces one of the sort of classic biases that we think about in screening trials, um, this idea of lead time bias. Yes. Um, and the idea that um, by identifying someone as having a cancer before it would be clinically identified, that their survival from that cancer appears to increase, mm -hmm. even though it really has done nothing to affect the natural history of the cancer that they have. Right. If you all you did was tell somebody they had cancer earlier, you'll improve five-year survival, but you won't make them better off. Exactly. That's, that's exactly why survival analyses and screening trials are so fraught. 
Mm. Well, let's get into this. Let's get into this. Let's start by, you know, I I was going to go on some rant here and and my blood pressure was very high. And I said, no, I won't do that. I'm going to get Adam Obley here because you are good at taking people through the basics. This is Screening 101. This is lecture. It's going to be called Screening 101. This is what you need to know about cancer screening, you know, that you probably should have learned years ago, especially if you want to talk about it. Okay, let's start there. Where, where do we dive in? What do we need to know about screening? What, what is screening? I guess, first of all, let me ask you this. Screening, it's not prevention. It's early detection. Is that right? That's correct. In most cases. Um, there are some examples where um, screening and prevention probably blur. Mm-hmm. Um, that's polypectomy. Not, polypectomy is a good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, treating certain um, precancerous lesions of the cervix, mm-hmm. for instance, may also be preventive. But um, the first thing I would say is that I come at this not from the perspective of an oncologist, but from the perspective of a general internist mm-hmm. um, who works with our residents in clinic and who has these discussions about the merits of screening with patients and our residents as well as they're trying to counsel patients. So on Twitter, um, they would say that you lack expertise. Uh, that could be, that could <laughs> be one <laughs> view of it, yes. No, but I think that's an incorrect view. You have a lot of expertise in population sciences and thinking about about screening tests. Just because somebody tears the tickets in the movie theater doesn't mean they know what movies to produce. Isn't that fair to say? So so some of these technical experts are probably really misunderstand what it means to have expertise on screening. I think that's a fair point. Okay, so you teach the residents this. And if anybody, primary care physicians are on the front lines. You're the ones who decide who gets screened and how often. I say you decide, but of course we'll talk about shared decision making later. Great. So, yeah, I think it's important. The, the basic principle of screening means that you're taking a healthy population, a group of people who have no symptoms of the disease that you're screening for. Um, and by definition, in comparison to a population of people presenting with, say, a symptom of the disease, if we're talking about colorectal cancer, it might be someone presenting with rectal bleeding and weight mm-hmm. loss yeah. um, or rectal bleeding and you know a change in bowel habits. Mm-hmm. Um, in that population, it's much more likely that a person who has symptoms, when you go down the diagnostic pathway, will turn out to have a cancer. Mm-hmm. In the healthy population that we're screening, um, the, the rate of cancer is actually quite low. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consequence of that is that even with very good tests, mm-hmm. um, it means that because of the low prevalence um, in our asymptomatic screening population, um, much of the testing will turn out to be inaccurate. Mm, I see. This is a great point about all tests. Even tests with good sensitivity and specificity are only as good as pretest probability. And what you're saying is pretest probability is low in people who are average, healthy people. That's exactly right. And and then the other point you're making that's wonderful is we are not going to be talking about how do you work up people with complaints. Having complaints and the workups that's come from that, that is a different sort of philosophical branch of medicine. And that's something there's much less dispute about. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So that's a great point. Okay. So we're talking about healthy people. There's a low pretest probability. And, and then if somebody were to say like, oh, but I have a family history of breast cancer, isn't my pretest probability high? What would you say there? Yeah, I would say in certain cases, we have a good understanding of what um, various risk factors like family history contribute to the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some instances, instances, it may alter our belief about when it's appropriate to begin screening. Okay. Um, 
However, um, in some cases, those risks are marginal at best. Yes, right. Um, and the background, the risk may not be that much different than the background risk in the population. Right. Um, so it really comes down to a more refined understanding of what those risks are. Right. Well put. Well put. Okay. So that's the population we're going after. What's the next bit about screening? So I think the next thing that you have to understand about screening is that in order for a screening test to be valuable, it has to be a condition which, when detected before someone presents with symptoms, has an associated treatment that would then alter the natural course of that disease. Mm -hmm. So that is to say that if we identify someone with an early stage um, uh, precancerous polyp um, through colorectal cancer screening, that by treating that somehow, we alter the course of the um, condition for that patient. And that's an excellent point. So one of the preconditions of cancer screening is that, I, I, I guess, you, one, you have to accurately find the, the entity you care about or the pre-entity you care about. And two, you have to be able to do something, to interdict, to intercept it, that will alter what will happen later. Correct. Okay, and then, and then I'll add one more thing there. And, and you have to also have a condition where had you found it later, you were gonna say this part? No, go ahead. Okay. So you also have to have a, as a sort of a precondition that had you found it later, you would not be able to dramatically improve the outcome. Right. So let's just use the testicle cancer example. Mm-hmm. We ha- now have a USPSTF grade D rating for testicle cancer. And that's not because, okay, of course, if you find a lump in your testicle, there is some probability that it's a testicle cancer. It could also be something else. Right. So there's some false positives, false negatives there. Unfortunately, the only way to work that up is orchiectomy. There's not a needle biopsy as a recommended approach to that problem. So you're going to lose that testicle. But we also know the reason testicle cancer screening really fails is that if you had stage four testicle cancer with BEP and some other novel regimens, we have cure rates that near 100% cure rates, 99% cure rates, 97% cure rates. So you don't have that precondition that things are worse if it was detected at a later stage, and it's better if it's detected earlier. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. So the second, so the prerequisite of screening here you're articulating is you have to be able to do something about it when you find it that will change the natural history. Right. Okay. And then I think the, the third key principle that I would raise, and this sort of goes back to the idea that we're working with an asymptomatic population, that many of the results we have will turn out to be false positives. Yes. And that begins a diagnostic odyssey for patients, which in many cases may entail a great deal of harm. Yes. Um, and we can talk more about that. I think there's some really wonderful examples, particularly with lung cancer screening, um, that sort of emphasize the, the tenuous balance between the benefits and harms of lung cancer screening. Now, that said, with any screening test, um, even once we've met those first two criteria, um, we still have to weigh the benefits and harms because we are going to be identifying a lot of false positives because we're starting those diagnostic odysseys because those diagnostic odysseys are often not cheap. Um, It's often a very fine balance between the benefits and harms um, when you're deciding whether or not to screen an asymptomatic population. That's a great point. And I love this phrase, diagnostic odyssey. I've never heard that. So that's a good one. And I think because you're right, it really is an odyssey. Let's say you see somebody, um, you know, heavy smoker who meets USPSTF guidelines, and let's say they get a non-contrast, low-dose helical CT. Let's say you find a nodule. Next thing you know, you might be subjecting them to a series, a battery of subsequent scans. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you send them down for, for EBUS and washings. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you send them for transbronchial biopsy. Maybe that's not enough. You send them for CT-guided biopsy. Maybe one in a hundred of those people, one in a thousand, you drop along. Right. Maybe, maybe you know, all sorts of things happen from that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is, uh, you know, people always say that knowledge is always good for you, but that's not <laughs> always the case in the human body. Knowledge is a double-edged sword. That's exactly right. And at least in one center's example, and sort of following up on the NLST, the lung cancer trial, um, I think this was the Pittsburgh experience. They found that for out of every 
um, for every two thoracotomies that they ended up pursuing um, that resulted in a cancer diagnosis, one thoracotomy provided a benign diagnosis. And Mm. that is an extraordinarily invasive, risky procedure um, for that sort of diagnostic yield. A thoracotomy, and you're saying about 50% of the time it turned out it was a benign thoracotomy. Uh, a benign it's about a third of the time. A third of the time. A third of the time. Well, that's uh, that's a kind of that's a big it's a big cut. Right. To and find of course, nothing. The problem much. is, is that the person who receives that benign diagnosis feels grateful. Feels very grateful. Yes, because they didn't know that in the alternate universe without screening, it's not that they would have had lung cancer. That's what they're thinking. But in the alternate universe, they would actually never have had to have a surgery. Right. All right that's the real counterfactual. Okay, that's a great point. Okay, so. So these are the principles. The pretest probability is low. Um, for some reason, in America, I mean, I, I would say it's an American obsession, but maybe it's a Western European and American obsession that screening was always about everybody. We never like pursued initially screening in high risk groups and then later extrapolated it mm-hmm. to lower risk groups. We always wanted to just bite the whole apple in one bite. We wanted one size fits all, all risk screening tests, mammograms for anyone over a certain age. You know, it's kind of interesting. It's just this mentality of, you know, we wanted to just get everybody. But it, all that did is really kind of lower our pretest right. probability. I hadn't thought about it. It's sort of a very democratic approach, isn't it? It's a very, and that's uh, that's not typical for, I think, this nation. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, you know, that's not, and it's actually a little bit different and how we approach something like statins, for instance, right. where we tried to bite at it a little bit incrementally. First, yes. MI and high risk cholesterol. Next, then just uh, and then just ACS and high cholesterol. Then you know just uh, secondary prevention here and there, and then finally primary prevention. I think it's probably because the the story that we tell related to screening is um, a very compelling one in the sense that people believe that message of prevention, mm, okay. um, even if it's inappropriately applied to, to most screening tests. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's, so it strikes someone as preventive medicine. Of course. It feels like, I mean, we're all taught an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and the right. psychology to believe in screening is deep and strong. That's right. Okay. So what, what's next? What's the next thing we need to know about screening? So the next thing to know about screening is that there are a lot of ways that screening studies can misrepresent the real benefits of screening mm. or whether there are any benefits at all to screening. Um, so probably the first thing to know is there's a bias that an epidemiologist refer to as the healthy volunteer bias, mm-hmm. which essentially means that in, people who elect to be screened represent a completely different population um, than people who opt not to be screened. And it's not necessarily that the screening means that they're just less likely to die from the cancer they're being screened for, a healthy volunteer will also be less likely to die from heart disease, Mm -hmm. will be less likely to die from any number of causes when compared to someone who opts not to screen. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first problems that we face in trying to understand what the benefits of screening are. So if I look at 100 people who underwent screening and compare them to 100 people who chose not to undergo screening, and it turns out the 100 that underwent screening did really, really well, I can't attribute all of that to the screening. There's also a stru- yeah, and and then the other thing I think is let's talk about I mean lung cancer screening. I think in lung cancer screening, that may be present even more than anything else I know because there are many people, whether we like it or not, who are high risk of lung cancer, heavy smokers, mm-hmm. continuing to smoke, who have a very nihilistic view of screening, and they may have other health behaviors, and they may choose not to be screened. Sure. And there may be another group of people who care much more about certain things over other things, and they may have quit smoking, and they may be really motivated to be screened along with being motivated to do a whole bunch of other things. Right. Okay. Okay, so that's another thing. So this is, a, this is one of the classic ways in which observational data will mislead us in screening. Yes, that's exactly right. 
And we already alluded to one of the other ways, this idea of lead time bias, mm-hmm. um, the idea that people perceive longer survival when a cancer is detected um, during an asymptomatic screening exam compared to when it's detected clinically. What if I were to tell you right now today that you will someday have prostate cancer? Your five-year survival will be really good. And I'm probably right. You, you probably are. Yeah. Uh, on both accounts. Yeah, on I both mean, accounts. The You're likelihood gonna... that, you know, a person living to... Uh, you know, my actuarially um, suggested yeah. age at mm-hmm. this point will develop prostate cancer at some point. It's quite high. I am telling you right now, you have prostate cancer, and I, w- I want you to thank me for giving you these years back to your life and saving. In fact, we could just say I saved your life. We could say that. We could say that. And ideally I also, on Twitter. Ideally on Twitter. Yeah, and I think you should say that on Twitter. And I think um, it also. I just want people to know this is just how good a doctor I am. <laughs> this is a life-saving podcast. It's a life-saving podcast. Okay. But this is a classic lead time bias because we know from autopsy studies that say, I mean, I've heard the numbers quoted as it's almost exactly proportionate to your your age. So that 90% of 90-year-olds, 80% of 80-year-olds, 70% of 70-year-olds will have prostate cancer detectable upon autopsy. Um, so that that's a very high percent of people. So in this is prostate cancer that most men will die with it than die of it or from it. Correct. And that sort of introduces a, a related concept, which is overdiagnosis. Mm. Um, and that's the identification of cancers that would ultimately never harm a patient. Mm. Um, and when we overdiagnose people, we tend, although not always, but we tend to overtreat them as well. Hmm. Um, and all of the harms that go along with the diagnostic odyssey and the overtreatment of these overdiagnosed cancers is very worrisome. And I think we have all sorts of examples in our day-to-day clinical practice. You know, I remember attending a tumor board as a resident where a you know, 90-year-old woman with NYHA class 3 heart failure mm-hmm. had undergone a screening mammography and mm-hmm. was identified as having breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this was someone who their prognosis from their heart failure alone was quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that they were continuing screening at age 90 and someone with those sort of comorbidities was a, a bit appalling. And they found DCIS, you're saying? I, I don't recall the exact tumor characteristics. Uh, but, but it could, could have been DCIS. It, it, it could, well could have been. been. That's and exactly then, right. And then the, the right answer... The board's answer is bilateral mastectomy and five years of tamoxifen. Isn't that right, Dr. Obley? Isn't that right? That's certainly what I would recommend, yes. No, I think, yeah. I think we're just kidding, of course, listeners. Please don't, don't ever do that. I think Dr. <laughs> Obley's point is, of course, that it is, it is crazy, crazy. I mean, it's not just crazy like you need to read books to be crazy to do this. It's crazy like you need to have just very basic common sense to know that that's not something you should be doing. You shouldn't be screening this patient who has a uh, very short life expectancy with a screening test that will almost surely lead to the detection of something that will be acted upon that will not benefit this person. And, And I think that's probably another important point that we should have made earlier, which is that the benefits of screening at a population level really accrue only over a long period of time. That's a good point, too. And then the other thing I want to point out is there's a great paper in JAM, I believe, 2010, which was the rate of PSA mammograms among people who already have a metastatic cancer diagnosis. And it found non-trivial levels of being PSA screened when you have metastatic lung cancer. (laughs) That's right. And, And I remember, without going into too many details... And I'm just thinking that now I'm going to disguise this. But I remember I had a patient once with a highly lethal stage four cancer who in between visits came back to me and handed me their colonoscopy screening report. And I said, who on earth, who on earth got this? 
why did you do this? You just drank go lightly and suffered at least one night of your life, and it will n- absolutely had no probability of changing your outcome. Yep. As I sort of jokingly say to the residents, in fact, I said it today in noon conference, if you have reached the age and the medical condition in which you're no longer buying green bananas, you probably should not be undergoing cancer screening. Wow. That is, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a clear way to put it, which is if competing risk is high, it's, it's unlikely to give you benefit. Okay. I guess the other thing about overdiagnosis, I'll say, uh, I was reading something online and they were saying that um, overdiagnosis is a myth. It's not true. It doesn't happen. What do you say to these people? And then somebody said it was a, it's been created by the tobacco industry. Adam <laughs> so, Obley, are you are, do you work for Big Tobacco, Adam Obley? I, I do not. You do um, not. Happily, yeah. I do not. What about um, Juul? <laughs> no, I don't. You don't vape? I absolutely not. I find that hard to believe. Uh, although interestingly, there is a nice study in JAMA AM. It looks like the French have um, tried to understand what the effects are. Um, of vaping on um, discontinuation of cigarette smoking. Uh-huh. And what did they um, find? And I think it was sort of an interesting conclusion. This is by no means definitive and totally parenthetic to our other discussion. But um, for people who are smoking and who switch to vaping, it may increase their rate of discontinuation or abstinence from, mm-hmm. from cigarette smoking. However, for people who start vaping, it probably increases the likelihood that they will eventually smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like there's probably some trade-off here. Um, we certainly need more data to, to better understand it from a public health standpoint. Be careful about vaping. You might find yourself like Dr. Scott Gottlieb stepping down for family reasons. <laughs> if you keep talking about vaping. Okay so, um, okay, so what else do I need to know about screening? There's also a point to be made that much of the overdiagnosis that happens in some cases in the United States isn't intentional. Um, and some of this classic work was done by Gil Welch and trying to understand the... Um, the effects of the increased use of um, cross-sectional imaging on the overdiagnosis of thyroid cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so now modern CTs of the chest often capture sections of the thyroid and identify a lot of thyroid nodules that way. And that leads to a lot of, uh, what did you call it, cascade? No, it's yeah, a diagnostic cascade or diagnostic odyssey. Odyssey. Um, in which people better. are then identified as having very indolent forms of thyroid cancer. The vast majority of thyroid cancers are, are indolent ones. And you know, just like the odyssey, in order to resist the temptation of future diagnostic tests, much like Homer, you have to lash yourself to the hull of the ship. <laughs> the is that, yeah, yes, should you not? Mostly. It's actually a much more apt analogy. Right. Yeah, the siren call will beckon you and you will be tempted and it will be irresistible. But that is something that also gets underappreciated but is worth stressing, which is that it is incredibly tempting. I mean, it, I, I can't, I mean, it even takes such like a heroic or brave physician to kind of say, we're going to stop working this up now. We don't need to work it up. A lot of people cannot break that. The report said, may consider, you may consider this to further exactly. work up this lesion. They're going to do it. Right. When the radiology report suggests it, it very often is the case that, that the patient will be concerned if you don't order the study. Yeah. It requires a great deal of explanation. Uh, to the broader point about people who don't believe in um, in this phenomenon of overdiagnosis, I yes. think there there is a, a, a philosophical debate there about how exactly to define overdiagnosis, and I acknowledge that it's hard. Um, I think I would point to probably the best summarized evidence on the front probably comes from Cochrane. Um, and they tried to summarize studies about the rate of overdiagnosis in breast cancer a few years ago and estimated that, if I'm recalling the data correctly, um, about a third of yeah, all breast 30%. cancer diagnoses yeah. um, represent overdiagnosis. And I guess I would say that, I mean, I think overdiagnosis, the definition I favor is the definition you've embodied, which is that it is the detection of a lesion based on histopathology that appears indistinguishable from lethal cancer 
but that if left unchecked, untreated, in the rest of the person's natural life will not impair their mortality nor their morbidity. Exactly. I think that's a good definition of overdiagnosis. And some of that is related to the fact that, as you say, it's the competing risk. Yes. Um, that they may have other conditions that mean that an indolent cancer will never cause any problems. On the other hand, as, as you well know as an oncologist, our understanding of cancer on a histologic basis is really incomplete. Yes. Um, and there are certainly numerous examples of precancerous lesions that regress on their own. Yes. Um, and even probably some cancers as well. Yes. Things that we would classically define as an established cancer um, through immune surveillance and, um, you know, immune attack will regress. Yeah. And I mean, there have been a number of... Um I guess, observational studies that have kind of hinted at this phenomenon, looking at different cohorts of women in Sweden that have appeared over the decades in, in the, the literature. But I think it's clear, I guess I'd say this about screening tests. Um, all screening tests that are worth their salt, I mean, there are a few that d don't even find cancer. I mean, but I guess the first thing is they have to find more cancer or precancer lesions. The test I'm thinking of that doesn't even do that is a self-breast exam based on the randomized uh, 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 Shanghai study and the Russian study. Um, but most of them find more cancer. Transvaginal ultrasound yeah, in CA-125 finds more cancer. Mammograms find more cancer. They find a heck of a lot more cancer, actually, it turns out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, CT screening for lung cancer finds more cancer. Uh, PSA screening finds more cancer. They all find more cancer. But then the question that you're facing is, do you find cancer that you can do something about that would otherwise have caused problems, and had you not done anything about it now, you couldn't do anything about it later that would have made things just as good? Right. Or are you finding a bunch of cancer that is either overdiagnosed, for which the only thing you can do to somebody is harm them, or you find a bunch of cancer that will progress to lethal cancer irrespective of what you do, in which case you've added a label and added treatment that is futile, that right. won't change outcomes. That's right. And I think you're alluding to essentially the third major bias that we discuss when thinking about um, cancer screening studies, and that's the idea of length time bias and yes. the types of cancers um, that you're going to detect with screening as opposed to clinical detection of cancers. Tell us about length time bias. And the essential idea here is that... Um, you want to use the rabbit and the the bird and the you know this analogy. That I don't Gil know Wedge this uses. analogy. Uh, Gilwatch says that uh, cancers are of three types. Yeah. They are turtle, turtles, rabbits, and birds. And the birds are the ones that no matter when you find them, they're going to fly yep. fly out of the nest anyway. They're going to fly so fast. The rabbits are the ones that are going to gallop along fast enough that they'll cause a problem. And if you catch them early, you might be able to do something about it. The turtles are the ones that they're going to go so slow, they're never going to cause a problem no matter what you do. Right. And the goal of screening is to find more rabbits, less turtles, and less birds. Yeah. But what you do find is all screening will find more turtles, then less rabbits, and then least birds. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's a really nice analogy. Um, the way that I usually explain it in clinical terms yeah. is that if you imagine, um, and we'll stick with an example of breast cancer here, if you imagine two women at the same age um, diagnosed at the same time, and one has a very aggressive, high-grade, triple-negative tumor, and one has a much more indolent tumor type, um, if you imagine that they develop cancer at the same time, the person with the indolent tumor is much more likely to be identified by screening than right. the person with the much more aggressive cancer who's likely to present with 
you know, for instance, breast pain or discharge. Or, and, or uh, bone lump, metastases. Or bone or metastases, lips, yeah. exactly. In other words, the window of time between the initiation of cancer and when it becomes clinically apparent is shorter in the highly aggressive triple negative, longer in the hormone receptor positive cancer. And so the longer it is, the more likely you'll be picked up on a screening test. Correct. And this emphasizes, again, why observational studies that are really meant to compare screen-detected cancers to clinically detected cancers don't tell you the whole story. So when somebody told me that we know five-year survival with lung cancer before CT screening was 5%, and now that there is CT screening, it's 25%, therefore we're saving lives, that person will be committing at least at least one, it's but perhaps more than fallacy. one fallacy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you believe any screening test can justify itself in the absence of a randomized control trial? <laughs> Um, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the answer is Quite the answer. Is no. Yeah. So in other words, um, we can use observational data to get better clarity of the harms, better clarity of the real world utilization, better clarity of that diagnostic uh, odyssey of what happens in the real world. But we can never use real world data to prove fundamental efficacy of screening. To prove efficacy, you need randomization. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 100%. And that is why... I think in these debates on screening, so many people say, they say that, I mean, uh, you, you're not privy to this because you're not on Twitter because you're actually smart. Um, <laughs> you don't waste your time with this. But I was in all these debates on Twitter and then somebody said that like, oh, the reason you're so critical of this, in this case it was CT screening for lung cancer, is because you're not aware of all the efficacy data. And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I am aware of all the <laughs> efficacy data because all the efficacy data can fit in one hand. NLST, right. the, NLST. Danish the Danish study, which is really small and poorly yep. done. Nelson, which my understanding is has more protocol amendments than a, than a, than a, than a target after target practice in Texas. Uh, uh, that, in other words, it's riddled with methodologic <laughs> holes. Uh, and, and a couple other, like, oh, this Italian study, which randomized people to two different screening strategies, which is so small and underpowered to tell us anything useful. It really is NLST. Right. It really is NLST. Um, and NLST, and I, I yeah. think, you know, I think we should give credit where credit's due. NLST was not necessarily a bad trial. Um, well, I think there are concerns about the controller. generalizability um, of, of NLST. Um, but, uh, you know, these, and we should acknowledge that these are not easy trials to do. Let's talk um, about that. Yeah. And I, I think for many of the reasons that we talked about earlier, the relatively low prevalence in an asymptomatic screening population, the fact that you're going to have to follow people for very long periods of time to establish a benefit of screening, it is difficult, but ultimately that's the only way that we'll really know whether there's a benefit in terms of reducing either cancer-specific mortality or overall mortality mm -hmm. by using a screening program. And I guess I would say, I, I, I agree with you that, that um, NLST is a very well done study. All of the studies that were sponsored by the NCI, uh, Division of Cancer Prevention, that were run sort of under the auspice of Barry Kramer, they're all really good studies. Mm -hmm. PLCO is a good study. Yeah. This is a good study. They're better than, I think, any other study ever done. Um, but they're not perfect studies. No, absolutely not. But some of these early studies that came out of Sweden on mammography, mm -hmm. um, some of the studies, the European study on prostate cancer screening. Respect. Erspec, which is not hardly a study, it's really a meta-analysis of studies of varying levels of quality. I mean, I think these have a lot of methodologic problems. Let me put it to you, let me ask you this. I mean, we're critical of drug industry trials, but is it fair to say that the average pharmaceutical company running a mega 10,000 person cardiology study, the quality of that study 
in terms of the randomization, the adherence, the follow-up, the fact that the control group was actually like a real control arm and not people just got mailed a card in the mail and some of them already deceased on entry, you know? But the quality of that study, is it fair to say the average pharma drug company study is better methodologically than the average cancer screening study? On its face, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I think I think the issue is is that with m many pharmaceutical trials these days, you have to dig much deeper to identify the, 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 the way that they put their finger on the scale. Yeah. Um, you know, it's changing outcomes. It's, it's a variety of other ways that um, data is manipulated um, as opposed to sort of the traditional domains of quality assessment that we think of for randomized controlled trials. That's fair to say. They yeah. will do appropriate allocation concealment. They will do use appropriate randomization techniques. Yes. There will ostensibly be an intention to treat analysis yes. <laughs> um, provided. Um, but the devil really with most of the new pharmaceutical trials is in the details. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's why we have plenary session to go through those. But you're <laughs> right. I mean, but I think in terms of the basic method, right. the, the quality uh, of the yeah. randomization, it's that's good. Fair. Okay, so what else is on your and your and your checklist of things you like to tell people when you're introducing screening? Well, I, I think it's worthwhile to discuss shared decision making because okay. there are many people um, who will make the case that shared decision making is sort of the the best way forward. Okay, um, when the benefits are are closely benefits and harms are closely balanced. Um, and, and I actually, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that from, a, from the standpoint of providing patient-centered care, that shared decision-making is absolutely the way to go. It's what we should do with patients. Um, I think for those who are thinking about, um, on a broader level, on a population level, um, trying to reduce the overuse of screening or the inappropriate use of screening, I don't think that shared decision-making is sort of the panacea that some have claimed it would be. Hmm. Um, and I think we know that from a couple of different um, avenues. I think, first of all, Cochrane had done a nice um, review of studies of shared decision-making. And the outcomes that have really been well-established with shared decision-making are things like the patient has more knowledge about the condition, um, that they perceive the risks more accurately, um, and to a lesser extent, that they're more likely to make a values-congruent decision after going through a shared decision-making process. What most of the studies of shared decision-making have not shown is that it reduces the use of, or the overuse of the subject um, that's being discussed in shared decision-making. Hmm. Um, so I think from the, from the standpoint of policymakers or from a population health standpoint of trying to discourage overuse, um, shared decision-making doesn't quite get us there. Yeah. I mean, there are good reasons in human psychology to, to understand why shared decision-making only gets us so far. Um, and there is, um, it, it really comes down to what I would describe as profound numeracy. Um, and that you present someone with information saying that maybe one woman out of a thousand who chooses to undergo mammographic screening between the ages of 40 and 49 will avoid death from breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, the person who's looking at that probably has a sort of optimism bias and says, mm -hmm. well, that one person could, could be, be me. me. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the same person who's looking at that chart of the outcomes, um, you know, may have just bought a lottery ticket or have gone to the casino in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't put risk in perspective very well. Um, yeah. And I think that's a human bias. So, like, the, I, I agree with you. I think that it is, I mean... People are good at dealing with probabilities that occur in day-to-day -day life, I think, 
you know, that there's a 70% chance it's going to rain or there's a less than 5% chance it's going to rain. Do I take a raincoat out or something like that and kind of eyeball the sky and see if it fits your gut feeling when you're leaving? Oh, we're good at these kind of probabilities. When you're talking about probabilities about screening. These are very, very low probabilities. Right. And, I, and I don't think that, I mean, and certainly not the case that evolution has like hardwired our brain to be really good at splitting hairs of low probability events. I mean, I'm talking about the benefits. The harms are often right. not low probability events. No, that's right. And I think it, that that same optimism bias, which tells someone I'm likely to be that one person out of a thousand right. who avoids a death from breast cancer is also the same optimism bias that says, oh, well, you know, the fact that, you know, I'll probably have unnecessary diagnostic testing that, you know, there could be complications from, you know, a needle biopsy, um, whatever. Um, that they're going to underestimate the likelihood of those harms happening to them. I see. Um, the statistic I always read for breast cancer screening, the one I think about that put it nicely, and this is kind of the Harding Center for Health Literacy, you know, Gerd Gigerenzer, uh, and others have kind of put these very nice infographics out there. This one, I think, comes from the Swiss Medical Board, uh, who actually wrote that provocative article in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago it's called Abolish Mammographic Screening. And they basically said that if you took an average risk woman, I think between the ages of 50 and 69, and you subjected her to 10 years of mammographic screening versus nothing, what do women believe? And they say of a thousand women who undergo screening, the average woman believes the death rate of breast cancer is 180 in the group of people that um, doesn't get screening and is half of that um, in the group of women that does get screening, like 90. So like a massive reduction in breast cancer right. death. But what they said is that the actual number is out of a thousand women who undergo screening for, I believe it was a decade, um, the actual number of deaths of breast cancer without screening is five and with screening is four mm -hmm. and the number of deaths of non-breast cancer related causes is 39 without screening and 39 or 40 with screening because we're not sure we actually kind of increase off-target death from the harms we subject to that 30 percent of overdiagnosed women yeah that's certainly provocative yeah and so i think like when somebody looks at that and they say oh should i be screened with mammography knowing there's a certain rate of having a false positive result and being called back for a repeat mammogram. There's a certain rate of having the doctor uh, put a clip in or doing a needle biopsy or putting a clip in and taking me to a surgical biopsy. And then if they do that, there's a certain rate that I'll be called back for a lumpectomy or something like this. That's and there's right. a certain rate I'll have cancer and I'll have to go chemo RT and all these kinds of things. Um, that That is a real risk. But the potential benefit of five to four in a thousand in the background of 39 or 40 other deaths um, that is what people have a difficult time appreciating. And I, and I would just emphasize that those risks are probably magnified in the United States because of differences in the way that mammograms are read between the U.S. and Western Europe, um, probably differences in treatment patterns. Um, a, a woman is much more likely to have a false positive in the United States than in you know many countries in Western Europe where there's double reading of mammograms. Hmm. And I actually think that, and one of the other things that goes into this graphic is that the, the risk reduction they're using as the benefit of mammographic screening is the pooled estimate that comes from all of the randomized control trials, um, but uh, something like 15 to 20% reduction in breast cancer death. But that may itself be inflated because we see as time goes on, this, the more recent mammographic screening studies, like the Canadian study that came out a couple years ago, those actually found less and less benefit. In fact, the Canadian study was a totally null study um, than the earlier studies that came out of Sweden and that came out of uh, the UK um, decades ago. Those found greater benefit. And if anything, all of the advances in adjuvant chemotherapy and 
imaging, in surgical staging, in sentinel node dissection, in radiography and radiotherapy to axillary nodes and supraclavicular nodes if those happen to be involved. All of these things have, if anything, diminuted the potential benefit of screening and thus the actual absolute benefits to women has probably gotten smaller over time. And this Swiss graphic nevertheless uses, I think, the pooled estimate across all time. No, that's a great point. Um, so, okay, these are your principles of screening. So, what screening test do you believe in, Dr. Obley? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, uh, I think out of the tests that we currently routinely offer to patients for screening, um, I think probably the most compelling for me based on the data um, are colorectal cancer screening, some okay. form of colorectal cancer screening. I'm not going to specify colonoscopy or FIT or anything else. Um, or septin-9 genetic testing. Certainly not septin-9 <laughs> genetic testing. Yeah, okay. That's the one you actually vote against. Okay. Um, I'm going to have you unpack this a little bit more. But I think what you're saying is for, um, for certainly men, mm-hmm. and women perhaps even to a lesser degree, because some of these new papers are suggesting maybe it's not the same, but certainly men, but maybe also women, over the age of 50, mm-hmm. below the age of 75. Correct. You would recommend, as the USPSTF does, one of the following tests, FOBT or FIT. Okay. Um, that's on the basis of randomized trial showing reduction in cause-specific mortality, and FIT maybe has better test characteristics. Correct. Or flexible sigmoidoscopy performed every five years. Which is just generally not done that much anymore, but yes, it's an option that's well, um, maybe if Medicare, in the USPSTF. Maybe Medicare wanted to reimburse a little bit better. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> for $200 in that Medicare, but 1000 for colonoscopy, you think yeah. I'm going to do a flexig? Fair enough. Come on. Come on, Adam. Give me, <laughs> make it worth my while, and I'll flex, we'll get some flexigs going. Okay, but, but the nice thing about flexig, I think, is that Strictly speaking, it is what has the randomized trial data. Um, colonoscopy true. doesn't. Um, you can get away with a couple fleets enemas, and you don't have to drink that gallon mm-hmm. of nasty stuff. Uh, okay, so flexig, or I guess colonoscopy. You're nodding your head because it basically is a, at least a, it is at least a flexig. Yes, at and least a flexig. It's, a, it's at least a That's flexig. Right. Yeah, it's a flexig, and then a little right. bit. Somebody has supersized your fries, but it's a flexing. Right. And hopefully we'll have more comparative data to better understand through randomized trials the relative merits of colonoscopy compared to less invasive strategies. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Lieberman's fit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Dr. Lieberman's randomized study, the VA, and there's right. another randomized study I'm aware of. But so these are the things you recommend. And I guess I would say I just saw recently a pooled meta-analytic estimate of sigmoidoscopy versus doing nothing in the annals of internal medicine. And it actually says that finally the all-cause mortality is kind of tipped in favor of sigmoidoscopy. Yeah, it was always close um, with all-cause mortality. So that's part of what leads me to say I think probably the most important cancer screening that we do is probably colorectal cancer screening. Yeah. And I guess the other thing we want to say is I think for this discussion, we're going to have to put... um, cervical cancer screening on the side mm-hmm. because I think cervical it's cancer... It's changing. <laughs> yeah. It's changing very dynamically. It predated randomization. There's scattered randomized trials largely done in resource-poor settings. I think it's it's a difficult thing to kind of talk about and to really understand what were kind of large-scale population mortality trends, what was driven by this. So I think we're going to have to put that aside. Right. We're going to talk about colon screening, breast cancer screening, um, prostate cancer, and lung, which are the things we have randomized right. data for. And, and I would say that um, probably second on my list after colorectal cancer screening, and this may be to your chagrin. CT you, screening lung cancer. If you could if you could recreate the precise conditions mm-hmm. under which NLST um, was conducted, um, in terms of the additional follow-up, the quality of the surgical care that patients receive, um, 
if you accept it just on the basis of the number needed to screen, um, an LST look, makes lung cancer screening look fairly attractive. Mm, well, 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 Dr. Obley, you coming to the lion's den and saying things like that. Well, I guess I'd say, I guess I'd say fair enough. I mean, I think in terms of like the number of people you need to diagnose to improve one life, the, the magnitude of the benefit, sure. But now I'm going to go into all the things I don't like about NLST. And, and the other thing I would say before, and I think it's totally appropriate to criticize an LST, um, I think that the work that's being done to try to better refine people's risk, um, because right now we have a fairly crude yeah. um, set of standards by which we judge whether or not someone should be screened for lung, lung cancer. And if we can better refine that risk, then it will make the screening proposition much more attractive. Yeah, I think, um, and and that's probably true for all these cancers. True, yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing I'd say is when you're talking about lung cancer screening, PSA screening, and mammograms, you know, they all have such lousy evidence, in my opinion, that I think, you know, you can pick which one of those three you want to, you like the best. The things about NLST that always trouble me are the following. Mm, one, the control arm of chest radiography. That's a really bad control arm. And I know they shot themselves in the foot because they had PLCO running, which was chest radiography versus doing nothing. And there's a subgroup of PLCO that kind of fit the NLST inclusion criteria. And they believed that I think PLCO was going to be positive. And they thought that if we launched NLST and we didn't have this inappropriate standard of care competitor, because it's not standard of care, it's an intervention as our control arm, we won't have answered the question, is CT better than chest radiography, which we think is going to be a winner. But of course, test radiography is not a winner. It actually did right. absolutely nothing except lead to extra procedures. And and thus, I think we got in this kind of pickle. So I guess one of my biggest problems with that study is, of course, I don't know how chest CT compares to doing nothing. Correct. I think that's a fair criticism. The other problem I have with that study is it didn't really document what I want to know, which is of a thousand people who get CT screening for lung cancer, how many needle biopsies, VATs, thoracotomies, um, pneumonectomies occur in that arm and how many occurred in the control arm because that you know the protocol and and the tables that report the rates of surgical procedures they only included the first subsequent procedure and they didn't include the second or third or fourth or fifth they didn't get the full odyssey the right. full cascade no, that's right and I think that's where the real world data can be really yeah. helpful in understanding oh, the, that's true yeah. in trying to understand that balance between benefits and harms and, and I completely agree with you that much of the data that's come out subsequently has raised concerns um, that, that in particular with lung cancer, the diagnostic odyssey could be quite harmful. Yeah. The other thing, and of course it can, because you can kill a person by the diagnostic Absolutely. odyssey. The other thing that troubles me is that uh, although they like to report outcomes in that 2009 paper, at the precise moment where wind blew favorably and all-cause mortality was tipped into significance, uh, I suspect that's a very um, uh, dubious finding uh, that the all-cause mortality is significant uh, because it's heavily driven, or at least driven to some degree, by an imbalance in non-lung cancer death that just happened to occur at that moment. That's true. Probably over time... You know, we saw in that study, what was it, an 18% reduction in lung cancer death, and that probably is enough to have a maybe 4% reduction in all-cause mortality, probably not enough to reach significance with that sample size, but, you know, that's another can of worms. Um, now let's talk about mammograms and PSA screening. Where do you put those two? <laughs> um, I, I think after, you know, discussing why I don't think that shared decision-making is necessarily um, all that helpful from a population standpoint, I think shared decision-making really is... Um, the paradigm for which we should approach the discussions for all of these, but in particular mammography and PSA screening. Um, Do you normally have shared decision-making for 
useless interventions in your clinic? <laughs> Not saying they're useless. I'm just saying, if it were useless, would you include it in shared decision making? Um, I, I think as long as we're practicing in an environment in which um, the USPSTF mm-hmm. um, recommends, you know, at least having these discussions with patients, I think Fair enough. that's probably the right thing to do. Um, but I, I think we should be candid with patients about what we know are the limitations of those tests as part of that shared decision making discussion. Um, the specifics, as we sort of alluded to at the beginning of this discussion, um, a lot of people were confused by the change in the USPSTF recommendations regarding prostate cancer screening. And when I discuss this with the residents, I think the point that I make, and this emphasizes something that we talked about earlier, is that every screening decision really comes down to the balance of benefits and harms. And I think the reason that prostate cancer screening may be more attractive now than it was five years ago um, really reflects a change in the practice of how intensively positive PSAs are worked up. Um, and then when prostate cancer is you know, identified, um, the intensity of treatment that's provided, um, which serves to reinforce the, the difficulty of understanding the benefits of screening. The urologists have chilled out a little bit, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's fair. They've chilled out. They used to, the moment they saw that Gleason 6, they prostatectomied everybody with their robot, their unproven robot. They dusted that robot off and they said it was better and then they did it. But now at least they can restrain themselves. They can, they can hold themselves back for a minute to place the MRI endorectal coil and perform an MRI. <laughs> so they can hold themselves back from the procedures. They can do the MRI. But then, you know, in a Gleason 6, they can hold off and do some active surveillance. So that's, I think, and I think you're right. That's why, that's in part why the USPSTF guidance, I believe in 2012, went from grade D, harms exceed benefits, to grade C, which is have a discussion with your doctor, to which, of course, the urologist popped the champagne bottles, <laughs> and then they had a little celebration. But it's grade C, we're red business. <laughs> C. I, I think this just seeks to, or I think in this case, it helps to emphasize that you can't just think about a screening test in isolation. Yes. In understanding the benefits of a screening test, you also have to think about all of the care that goes along with it, diagnostically and therapeutically. I think PSA screening is, boy, it's a tough one. It's got such lousy data. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have the PLCO study, which basically compared yearly PSA screening versus maybe opportunistic a, screening, a right. one-time contamination, right. a one-time contamination over a decade, opportunistic. That's and that's. I mean, people always fault PLCO for that contamination. You, look in the mirror <laughs> if you want to look at who's responsible for the contamination. It's you. You, the profession, who could not restrain yourself and have somebody on the control arm of the study not get screened because screening was running bonanzas back then. It was running bonkers. I guess the other thing about shared decision-making is I find it a bit cynical because having spent so many years kind of watching how it happened, at least in the last decade and maybe a little bit before that, um, I I just feel like the vast majority of situations I've seen there was never any discussion. People just check the box and just send these tests off. You go, go get your mammogram before you see me next time. Get your mammogram. See you. That's the discussion. That's not an. That's nothing. No, I totally agree, and I think you you raise an important point, which is, you know, simply saying that shared decision making has occurred does is no guarantee of the quality of the shared decision making right. discussion. Right. Right. So I guess some of the other things about prostate cancer screening, 
Uh, you know, there have been a number of randomized control trials now, maybe about five or six randomized control trials that are fairly large and well done. The PLCO screening test found no reduction, statistically significant reduction in prostate cancer death, nor a reduction in all-cause mortality. The European study found a 20% reduction in prostate cancer-specific mortality, not all-cause mortality. Correct. And, and it took quite a long time and to demonstrate that. 13, 13 years. years. Yeah. 13 years. And... and, and uh, it was only found in some of the nations that were participating, That's but correct. not other nations. And I think it's interesting because when last I checked, the number needed to diagnose, the number of cases of prostate cancer you needed to diagnose, presumably act upon to avert one death from prostate cancer, was still in the low 20s, low to mid 20s. Maybe I think actually was still was 27, I think, in the Lancet publication. That sounds about right. Yeah, and 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 you know, we wrote that satirical article a couple years ago, that modest proposal article, where we said that if you just took every man at the age of forty and just did a prophylactic prostatectomy, your number needed to diagnose is, is actually thirty three. Lifetime risk of prostate cancer around three percent. So actually PSA screening is such a bad test that you are doing so many prostatectomies to save one life for twenty percent of people that if you just took everyone's prostate out, you'd save many, many more lives. You know, you'd save four times as many lives. Um, and you'd have roughly the same harm to benefit ratio. <laughs> the same casualty ratio will be preserved. So it's silly not to just cut it all out. We're going to need more robots. Yeah, right. You've got to dust off the Da Vinci's. Okay, so that's the PSA debate. And I think the other thing about PSA screening is, um, you know, when we talk about the harms and particularly the harms of being treated if you didn't need to be treated, those are not trivial harms. No, not at all. Um, you know, prostatectomy comes with a substantial risk of um, urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction. Um, radiation therapy comes with a significant risk of radiation proctitis. Um, Rectal it, incontinence. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, even thinking about some of the other examples, um, going back to, I alluded to the work that Gil Walsh did on um, thyroid cancer. Um, overdiagnosis, many patients will end up undergoing radical procedures um, to eradicate their thyroid cancer, um, many of which will turn out to be indolent thyroid cancers that um, would never have harmed them. Hmm. Um, and that was also part of the work that he did was showing the increase in the number of neck dissections. And yeah, I think the thyroid cancer, which is an opportunistic screening, the incidence has just gone up like like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, yes. and the yep. death from prostate cancer is as flat. Or thyroid cancer thyroid, has been sorry, completely flat. It's as flat as the median household income. Nope, that's right, and that's that's been true not just in the opportunistic screening setting, the sort of incidental screening setting that we see in the United States, but in countries that have implemented um, systematic thyroid cancer screening South programs, Korea. South Korea being mm -hmm. the most notable. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. Um, mammographic screening. You're smiling. I, I'll be honest. I don't, um, given that my clinical practice is in uh, a the VA, VA hospital, um, I'm not doing as many of these shared decision-making discussions, um, and I'm not having to, to cross that bridge quite as often. Well, I'm surprised that these um, the advocates for screening, some of the most ardent proponents, have not yet recommended it for men as well, because men also can get breast cancer, Adam. And even though it's a little bit more rare than in women, if screening is good for some people, if a little is good, a lot is better. Well, now that everyone knows their BRCA status from their 23andMe. Of course. Um, now you know who to screen. Now maybe male breast cancer screening should be. Mm. Well, I guess about breast cancer screening, I will just say, I guess we'll save it for a future thing because uh, there's a lot to say there. But I think overdiagnosis is problematic. False positives are problematic. The treatments have gotten better over time. The magnitude of benefit is 
debatable. In the Cochrane meta-analysis by um, Peter Gucci and colleagues, they have this table of adequately randomized trials and the point estimate of benefit and inadequately randomized trials and the point estimate of benefit, pointing out that some of the trials had really kind of gross imbalances that you might not expect if the trial were like actually properly randomized the way any pharmaceutical company would ran- even <laughs> even the way a pharmaceutical company would randomize. And what they find is the point estimate of benefit is larger in the inadequately randomized versus the adequately randomized studies, which I think Cast further uh, cautionary note there. Absolutely. There's that. Ni- there's a nice paper by Peter Juni in the Annals of Internal Medicine where he plots the the Z-score for non-breast cancer mortality and shows. And this is something that Gil Welch and Bill Black have done, which is they have ex- all these people have explored what happens in a randomized screening trial for death not from the target cancer. And if you start to see imbalances either favorable or unfavorable that are beyond the benefit of the target screening, you start to wonder if there's something wrong with the study because you shouldn't be. A breast cancer screening should not be lowering your rate of dying of MI. Uh, CT screening of lung cancer should not be lowering the rate at which you die of pancreas cancer. You know, it shouldn't have anything to do with that. That's right. And so if there are imbalances there, you have to start asking tougher questions. And I think Bill Black's paper from 2000 in the JNCI was a good one. Um, this Peter Juni paper in Annals of Internal Medicine was a good one. Uh, anyway, we'll save that for another day. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the new holy grail, blood-based cancer screening. These people on the blood-based cancer screening, it's as if they've learned not, they've learned nothing. So one of the things I see is like, you know, I mean, people ask me like, what do you think about the, the prospects of a single blood-based screening test for cancer? I say, boy, boy, do you have an uphill battle there. One, the first thing right off the bat is any circulating proteomic or genomic or transcriptomic marker of cancer is probably much more likely to be found in advanced or metastatic disease than it is to be found in early stage disease. So the first thing is you might not be finding early stage cancers. You might just be finding a lot of late cancers in which the only thing you're probably going to be doing if it's incurable, which it probably is because it's a solid tumor, is add lead time. Yeah, you're, uh, you're finding Gil Welch's birds in your analogy. Exactly. You're finding birds. You're finding birds a little bit before they've flown out of the yard and you're giving lead time bias, but you're not helping anybody. You're not finding rabbits. Um, and because those are probably the cancers that are shedding more. And I think there's you know, some literature that actually does support some of that. Uh, okay, then the next thing is, let's say you do find, you find a way somehow miraculously to have some blood-based signature for a cancer, um, and, and it is somehow miraculously, preferentially from early stage versus late stage tumors. Then you have this challenge of, once you know that it's there, how do you localize it? You need to image it. And what imaging test is going to point out where it is and not point out a bunch of just, you know, normal stroma? It's the resurgence of full body CT or MRI. That's right. My executive physical. Exactly. The executive physical, which is what, as you know, I participate in every year. My <laughs> annual PET CT. And one of these days, my adrenal gland will stop glowing. Yeah, so I get my PET CT. And, you know, when you get an annual PET CT, it's not just a diagnostic test, Adam. It's also radiotherapy. I want you to know that it's also therapeutic radiation. Good point. Uh, so, so that's the executive physical. So, but you have you'll have to localize it. And let's say you find the signature from an early pancreas cancer lesion. Is it in the tail? Is it in the head? Colon cancer. What are you going to do uh, if you find some blood total signature, colectomy? Total colectomy. Yeah. These. I mean, but these are the questions that people are going to be asking, which is you have to localize it and cut it out ostensibly, and that is an uphill battle. 
That's a big uphill battle. And then the next thing is the real way that anyone with a, I don't want to say something super mean, but anyone who's ever thought about screening or knows anything at all about cancer screening, what they will want to see is a randomized trial showing that your blood-based test, as opposed to routine standard of care, which is doing nothing, will improve the death rate from all cancer death or hopefully the death rate from all-cause mortality. And that will take a randomized trial that probably runs about 13 years follow-up, maybe less if you are finding if you think you're going to be hitting a home run. But it's not going to be easy. It's probably going to be a 50,000, 100,000-person randomized trial with a decade of follow-up. That is not an easy thing to show. And anyone who wants to implement this before you get me that study is really in need of some serious therapy. <laughs> serious therapy and education. They need to know the history of screening. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's an uphill battle. Um, all right, so last thoughts on cancer screening. Most of your career and my career is similar. Uh, wouldn't you say it's fair to say that screening was really pushed on people kind of inappropriately? Uh, I think that's fair. I think um, I think in medical education, um, much of the nuance about screening um, is not taught. Mm-hmm. And I think that just like everyone else, um, you know, students in in medical school um, also have that sort of that sort of intrinsic bias that it's a form of preventive medicine. It's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that we can be doing to keep people healthy, um, and that's you know the the benefits when they are there are usually quite marginal at the population level. Yeah, if at all. If at all. Yeah. Um, so I th- I think that's one aspect of it. To if you're asking in an individual patient encounter, do we push it too hard? Um, in your course of your career, think about 2009, mm-hmm. 2008, PSA screening, especially a place like the VA where it's one of those little checklist buttons. Right. Well, so that's a that's a separate <laughs> can of worms yeah. about the effects of, you know, quality improvement programs yeah. on... Yeah, the quality improvement programs whipped, right. uh, whipped us, whipped uh, doctors to screen. Yes. Lots of inappropriate screening happened yes. as a result. No, I think that's right. I think those certainly had an unintended consequence mm-hmm. um, of promoting overuse and inappropriate screening. It should have led to like a to sort of a rethinking of like, before we subject healthy people to interventions, we really need to get our ducks in a row. We need to have better data. We need to be honest and truthful about what was known and unknown was really merely speculated. Absolutely. Here are some of the other things we didn't talk about too much, which is, is it fair to say that some of the people who are the most ardent proponents of screening coincidentally have their entire field bolstered or supported by the revenue that comes from that diagnostic odyssey? Um, in some cases, that's certainly true. Um, I, you know, probably the counter example to that is that um, most PSA testing was actually being done by primary care providers uh-huh. because it's a less invasive, less uh-huh. technical test. The interpretation is somewhat more straightforward. Uh-huh. But some At of least, the most ardent, uh, you know, campaigners were, were urologists. noted urologists. Absolutely, yeah. no, without a doubt. Um, are radiologists certainly the most ardent proponents of mammography? Without a doubt. Yeah. And what I find so interesting is that these specialties, they all, I mean, one of the arguments that they use, I know I made a list recently of like kind of the bizarre arguments they use. I'm going to try to pull that up actually. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So this is the, this is something I tweeted recently. I'm going to write a bio. Since you're not on Twitter, you wouldn't have read it. I say, this is my, my reflections on, on being part of online debates on screening. Discussing or debating cancer screening is frustrating. Here is why. Thread. One, motivated reasoning. Entire specialties of medicine are justified by the revenue from screening and downstream interventions, hence massive motivated reasoning to believe. Two, a contest of who really cares about patients. Frequently, people comment that, you know, 
people who are pro-screening, we actually care about patients. We don't want people to die of cancer screening. We care. When that's obviously a disingenuous argument. We all care. You care. I care. The thing is, some of us want to let data and facts guide our actions, and some people want to let optimism guide their actions. And what's better for people is to let data and facts guide actions. Um, three, um, I say nearly no discussion of the technical aspects of trial design, inclusion, endpoint adjudication, and harms monitoring. I think on some of these other podcasts we talk about how death is adjudicated. Mm-hmm. We didn't get into it too much, but cause-specific death, of course, is not. Um, right. it, it you know when when you pass away, it's not something you can read off the person's uh, name tag. It doesn't appear on their you know their skin the cause of death. You have to make a judgment, and that is not always a clear judgment. No, that's right. The extraordinary subjectivity of death determinations, and even autopsy findings. Which is why I, as you know, am a proponent that all-cause mortality should be powered and designed for all-cause mortality. And I actually think kind of a corollary there is people say, oh, the trial will have to be mega. It'll be so big if you had to power for all-cause mortality. And I hate to say that, you know, you're, you're conceding something quite great off the bat. What you're saying is that this strategy is so unlikely to make a major difference in someone's life that we would need a million people to see this tiny, tiny marginal difference in survival. And what you're really saying is that maybe it's not worth doing because it's not worth powering the trial for that. When there are a number of interventions we don't do a great job at that would save way more lives, like blood pressure control. Right. Absolutely. Weight loss. Um, okay. The constant rhetoric of saves lives that with, with the implication that anyone who disagrees is pro-death. Um, oh, the use of non-randomized studies with cure rates by stage or five-year survival by stage, which are, as we've talked about, plagued by lead time bias. The total confusion between cause-specific death and all-cause mortalities. It's often hard to adjudicate cause-specific death. Um, limited exposure or discussion or understanding of overdiagnosis. This is one that gets me, number eight. Appeal to expertise. I'm an expert in this tumor type. So does that mean that, interestingly, radiologists understand population screening best when it comes to mammograms, but urologists understand the principles best when it comes to prostate cancer? It's so strange that that understanding principles of screening that are universal really do apply tissue by tissue, tumor by tumor. Didn't know that. Um, The belief that being an advocate for a disease means you must be an advocate for screening. I think that's a poison that's out there. Um, And I think number 10 was the repetitiveness of the discussion, uh, C1 through 9. (laughs) <laughs> and then I ended this this quote, which is a Carl Sagan quote, which is what counts is not what sounds plausible, not what we would like to believe, not what one or two witnesses claim, but only what is supported by hard evidence, rigorous and skeptically examined. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Oh, the last thing, um, you know, Gil Welch has that really nice paper called The Likelihood That a Woman Whose Breast Cancer Was Diagnosed Through Mammography Had Her, quote, Life Saved by That Diagnosis. And this was like a JAM Internal Medicine paper where one of the things you always hear in the screening debates is, look, you don't need to tell me about screening. My life was saved because I had a mammogram and I found my breast cancer. And of course, what that assumes is you didn't find an overdiagnosed cancer. You found a cancer that would otherwise not have been detected and would have spread and been lethal. Um, that it, what, it wouldn't be that you would have felt it a year later as a lump and still had the same curative outcome because in that case, mammograms wouldn't have helped. And Gil Welch goes through all these reasons and he comes up with this figure that, well, the average woman undergoing mammographic screening, even assuming the most favorable 15 to 20% point estimate of benefit, only had a 13% likelihood that her life was saved by the tumor that was found through mammograms, which is really quite sobering. It is, absolutely. The other piece that I would um, commend to your listeners, also by Gil Welch, and not directly pertinent to screening, but to sort of this broader issue of um, uh, of overdiagnosis, um, I believe it's called On Silver Linings, or something about silver linings, and I believe it was in um, JAMA Internal Medicine. Hmm. He essentially makes the case that... Um, 
you know, someone who has an incidental renal lesion on CT that then undergoes a partial nephrectomy and finds out that it's benign um, will often state that they're grateful to, right. you know, to have a new lease on life, that their life was saved. Um, whereas if someone, um, through a case of mistaken identity, um, assaulted you on the street and badly injured you, so much so that you lost a kidney, right. you certainly wouldn't be thanking that person. Right, right. Um, and in many cases, our incidental findings um, are, nothing more, than are nothing more than a case of mistaken identity. Nothing more than an assaulter, yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk to you is about opportunity cost, which is, you know, to me, one of the most pernicious, understudied, perhaps even poisonous parts of screening is that, you know, the amount of time that somebody has to spend with their doctor get to know their doctor and talk about things that matter to them is already so, so limited in our system. And all of our efforts to push screening into primary care has really pushed other things out. And a lot of it has been pushed out is, you know, the part of primary care doctoring that was perhaps the most joyous, which is really getting to know somebody mm-hmm. and hear about what matters to them. What do you think about that? That I mean, how much of the time of the primary care appointment is screening and yeah. not all these other things? No, great point. Um, just one of the screening shared decision-making discussions that we've talked about today could take up an entire 15 or even 30-minute visit um, if it's done well um, and in a way that really elicits the patient's values and preferences and tries to to map those to our best understanding of what the benefits and harms of screening are. Um, And, and of course, that does come at an opportunity cost. You know, at that same visit, you may have lost out on the opportunity to discuss someone's elevated blood pressure um, and the chance to either discuss dietary or pharmacologic interventions or exercise interventions um, that would benefit that person. Or weight loss, something that's criminally under-discussed in most primary care settings. Mm -hmm. Um, So there certainly are opportunity costs. And then, you know, there is, of course, the, the... broader point that you're making, which is much of the joy of primary care um, isn't in the details of conditions um, or screening discussions. It's about getting to know patients. Um, And I see that less and less, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that that is the one unintended consequence of this juggernaut of screening, which has diverse motivations, uh, perhaps human optimism and and innumeracy have something to do with why it's pushed so hard. Um, but it's pushed a lot of things out, and it's become an easy thing to measure and become a quality metric, which is used to, even to my understanding now, some primary care doctors, a percent of their salary is tied to the rate at which women agree to have mammographic screening, for instance. And uh, You're nodding your head. That's quite problematic to me. I agree. Well, I want to thank you for your time. This is This is screening 101. I mean, I didn't think we haven't even gotten into, like, the, the deeper issues, which is you can really, really put all these trials on the table and go through them. I mean, like with prostate cancer, we can go through the different trials, some of the difficulties with a European study. Then we can also talk, I think, in prostate cancer we didn't talk about, which was the difference between the Scandinavian prostatectomy trial in the era in which prostate cancer was largely detected through symptoms and the more recent PROTECT study uh, um, in the era in which prostate cancer was largely detected through PSA. Um, and and the more recent trial pivot uh, by Tim Wilt and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, which shows that, you know, that mortality benefit that we had thought existed for prostatectomy in an era in which prostate cancer was detected one way may not be present in an era in which prostate cancer is detected a different way. Um, I think 
When it comes to mammographic screening, there's a really wonderful book by Peter Gocha, Truth, Lies, and Controversy, which is about some of the, the battles he's had about mammographic screening over the years. Um, and as I recall, he's no stranger to controversy. He's no stranger to controversy, yeah. Um, but some of his best work was his original work that really teased apart some of the challenges in these clinical trials on cancer screening. Um, and he faced a lot of pushback for that. Um, and of course, Gil Welch, who's done, I think, so much work along with Steve Wolishin and the late Lisa Schwartz, who was wonderful on cancer screening and better understanding the issue. Uh, and I guess what I'd say is, I mean, I've almost kind of, I have kind of given up on mammograms and PSA. Those ships have sailed. I thought CT screening for lung cancer was something where more people would have demanded confirmatory trials. And this Nelson trial that's never been published doesn't stop anyone from saying how wonderful it is, but it's really never been published. And there've been some um, journalistic reports say that there have been many, many, many protocol amendments and there's going to be some kind of methodologic issues that we're going to have to discuss when it does get published and those are revealed. And I think there's also something to be said for when you run a very large randomized trial of a popular cancer screening and you put out a press release and then nine months later you still haven't published a paper, uh, you got to start wondering why that paper is not out there already. Because I'll tell you something, if it was really robust, rock solid science, everyone's going to want to publish that paper for the impact factor. Um, uh, so that's going to be something that's discussed. Um, I think I'm very scared about this whole blood-based cancer screening because I think it's just going to be like the problems of the of these other screening tests, which was we weren't ready to implement things, and we just jumped ahead and implemented it. And then decades later, we're stuck with studies uh, with opportunistic screening in the control arm because we jumped the gun and implemented something before we had any idea if it helped people or hurt people. Yeah. I think a good way to conclude um, sort of screening 101 is that it's completely fair to say that the enthusiasm for screening and the optimism about screening uh, far outpaces the data that supports the population health benefits of screening. Yeah, I think that's it. That that the consistent signal is people's expectations of and the enthusiasm for screening outpaces the demonstrated benefits of screening in well-done studies. Um, and, and that's something that we have to at least acknowledge and hopefully hopefully solve. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on the plenary session stage for Pete. And who knows what's next? We'll get you back here for the fifth one. Thanks, Vinay. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>